as we come together this evening to study God's Word. I wanted to mention to you, since it's been a couple of weeks since I have been with you, I mentioned the last time I was with you regarding our study of the book of Psalms with our coming now tonight to a look at Psalm 73, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, Psalm 73. We are now thus entering into what is called the third of five overall books within the whole of the 150 Psalms. That is, of course, within the overall Psalter of Israel. We now come to what has been known and arranged within these Psalms, book three, book three of five. You may not have noticed that before, but you'll see in most of our Bibles, as I see in mine, that it says there in bold letters, book three. Do you have that in your Bibles there? Book three. If you haven't been with us when we have gone through these particular books within the book of Psalms, we've talked about their arrangement. We've talked about the providence of God in using those in God's providence, under God's providence, who arrange these psalms with God's superintendence. God had a plan and a purpose, and there was an ancient internal division of these five separate books which make up the whole of the 150 psalms. O. Palmer Robertson, a wonderful Old Testament scholar who has studied the book of Psalms for many, many years, comes to the suggested conclusion in his book, The Flow of the Psalms, Discovering Their Structure and Theology, that one could label these five books, these five divisions of the Psalms by looking at their internal coherence. These Five books are arranged and fitted together with great care. All 150 in these five books, these five divisions, show a very cohesive pattern of the story of Israel. It's quite amazing. When you and I say, for instance, in our Bible reading plan, or maybe you're going to say to yourself, I'm going to read through the Psalms this year Uh, And maybe that's the one book that you really want to get to know. You really want to read it for your soul. You might just read each individual psalm, and you might come to the conclusion that, oh, I I see some cohesiveness, I see some similarity, maybe some continuity there, but I'm not altogether sure that there is rhyme or reason with the 150 psalms as they are put together. Well, that would be wrong because there was great care, as I said, under the providence of God in putting this together to show the very history of Israel. It's quite amazing. For instance, excuse me, Robertson says in his book that he comes to five conclusions and he actually gives a name for each of the five divisions of the book of Psalms. One key word that helps to explain it. 
And for instance, if you look at book 1 in Psalms 1 to 41, the key word that he has come up with is the word confrontation. Confrontation. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that King David, who is the author of those psalms, most of them, of course, if not all of them, King David challenges the Israelites around him to remain faithful amid all the various enemies of Israel. And that is precisely what we learned in all 41 of those psalms. Now, they were coming at it from all kinds of different angles and different perspectives, but if you looked at the first 41 psalms of the Psalter of Israel, you would find that King David is continually talking about Israel's enemies, how to respond, how to respond to God, how to respond to them, how to remain faithful amid the challenges of all of these warring nations around the nation of Israel. That's what makes up Psalms 1 to 41. It's very clear once you read it from that perspective. How about book 2? If book 1 is confrontation, book 2, which takes up Psalms 42 to 72, that word is communication. Communication. You might even put uh, above Psalm 42 the word communication in your Bible. It's a key word. It's a key concept. What What does it mean? Well, all of those psalms have to do with the idea of proclaiming God as the true God among all the nations. In other words, if the first set of Psalms, 1 to 41, is talking about the challenge of the warring nations against Israel, that being confrontation, here we have in the next book, book 2, Psalms 42 to 72, communication. It's all about proclamation. All of those Psalms, in one way or another, again, looking at it from different angles and different perspectives, uh, like the facets of a diamond, are talking about our need to proclaim the true God among all the nations of the world. That's what Israel was to do. What about book three? Book three, that's Psalms 73 to 89. Psalms 73 to 89. And by the way, um, when you say, for instance, like we're going to study tonight, Psalm 73 we say it in the singular, not Psalms 73. But when we talk about multiple Psalms, we therefore are talking about Psalms in the plural, right? Sometimes you'll hear people say Psalms 73. Well, not particularly correct. We know their heart, but the idea is what is book three talking about? And it's talking about devastation. Devastation. The first book, Confrontation. The second book, Communication, according to Palmer Robertson. And thirdly, Devastation. Now, what does that mean? Well, these psalms, all of them, Psalms 73 to 89, and particularly the pinnacle psalm of this section, which would be Psalm 80, is talking about when the Israelites lost their trust in God among or amid the conquering of their land. Devastation. Can you imagine, since we're, of course, living in America, if we had marauding, warring nations who came upon us and were able successfully to move us out of our land? We had to go to a foreign place. We had to live among foreign peoples, and then we might even be conscripted to serve their foreign gods and to 
pray to them and to worship them at the threat of death. This is, this is what Psalms 73 through 89 are talking about, and it was devastating. Devastating. Book four. Book four. Psalms 90 to 106. Psalms 90 to 106. And what's our key word there? Well, if book one is confrontation, book two, communication, book three, devastation, book four, maturation. Maturation. What do I mean? What does Palmer Robertson mean? Psalms which show Yahweh as king and how he will, even though in the devastation psalms, which we'll go over next, how it doesn't seem that way, God is actually chastising his people so that they could mature through the devastation that they might be mature spiritually in order to see God reign victorious among all those rival nations. Maturation. And then book five, and finally, are Psalms 107 to Psalm 150. Psalms 107 to 150. And as you might expect, that key word is consummation. Consummation. Confrontation, communication, devastation, maturation, and consummation. This is the final series of psalms in the book of Israel's Psalter, which brings everything together as Yahweh receives all glory and all praise forever and ever. And there's even a set of psalms within book 5 that are at the end in which we're constantly being commanded to praise Yahweh. And do you realize that hallelujah is the Hebrew word praise, and with the shortened version of Yahweh, we are commanded to hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise God. Why? Because he receives all glory and praise. He's vanquished every foe. He's the Lord God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that's, a, that's a universal word. That's a universal concept. And of course, the Yah on the end is the most important part of Hallelujah because there are a lot of would-be gods for whom people are saying hallelujah, but they're not saying hallelujah. And this is, this is the Psalms. This is the structure of it. This is the theology of it. And if you and I were to see ourselves as seeing much more coherence, continuity, uh, purpose, the Psalms would come alive for us much more than they do. Now I know the tendency is for all of us, myself included, oh, I'm going to read a Psalm an individual psalm every day. And I'm going to do it over the next 150 days. And it's easy for us to get caught up with everything we're, we're going through on that day, and we're not thinking about the psalms and their structure and their theology. But the idea is that each one of those books have been carefully arranged in the providence of God by those to whom God was providentially leading so that Israel could actually see all the way from confrontation to consummation the history of their own people. 
Wouldn't it be amazing for you and me to write a set of songs that gave the history of your country from absolute start to finish? And you put those songs together in an album. And that album would be a recitation by song singing of the history of your people. It would have so much more meaning. Every time you would read a particular song, you'd say, oh, yes, that was a part of our history when this happened or that happened. And, and that's a dark period of our history. And, and this is a time in which we had a, a greater moment in our history. And, oh, by the way, here's the end of the story where we'll have the greatest part of our history. Hallelujah. This is the Psalms. This is what they are. And you want to know how some of these book divisions actually fit together with each other, especially the ones that start each of the book divisions? Well, look at Psalm 73. Look at Psalm 73. This is a a psalm, and I'm going to explicate it for you. I'm I'm going to give you an exposition very quickly of this psalm because I want you to see two major divisions. And the divisions at the beginning, namely verses 1 even to verse 16, verses 1 to 16, is talking in the kind of language that actually sees us being taken back right to Psalm 1. Because you remember, Psalm 1 is probably one of the most exciting, one of the most memorable, one of the most often read Uh, and one of the most understood psalms of all because of its simplicity and its profundity. Look at Psalm 1 with me. Keep your finger there at Psalm 73 and look at Psalm 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see all of that from Psalm 1, 1 to 3? It's talking about whom? The righteous. The righteous. Here's what he does. Here's what he doesn't do. So it's a, it's a psalm that begins with the idea of the righteous. Look back over at Psalm 73. Psalm 73, 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God's people. God's, God's righteous people within Israel, right? Same as Psalm 1. And now back at Psalm 1, you have in verse 4, the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's contrasting, does the psalmist, David or whoever it might be, is contrasting the righteous and the wicked, right? Go back to Psalm 73. Look at verse 2. Psalm 73, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of whom? The wicked. It's it's a kind of mirror psalm with a big difference. 
but a mirror song nonetheless. This is the start of the third book division of the Psalms, and the gateway to all the Psalms is Psalm 1, and it's talking about some of the same things, the righteous and the wicked. There's great continuity there. Now, Psalm 73 is different, and we'll talk through that in a minute, but it's talking about the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And then you have Psalm 2, which, if you remember, I said that Psalm 2, because it doesn't have a superscription, doesn't have a title, it was probably at one time grouped together as a set of verses with Psalm 1. It was probably at one time altogether one psalm instead of broken out in two. Here, however, Psalm 2, notice what it says in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now it's going from the idea of the righteous and the wicked by way of contrast, and now it's talking about wicked nations. Wicked nations. And if you go back over to Psalm 73, you can read all the way, and we'll do it in a moment, from verses 4 all the way through verse 16, that there are those who are wicked, but look, Turn over to Psalm 74. First two psalms of our Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2. Now, first two psalms of the third book division, Psalms 73 and 4. And notice this, verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Notice the plural, us. Us. Why do you cast us? In Psalm 73, Asaph's talking about himself. In Psalm 74, Asaph is talking about his people. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Sheep, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old. Congregation, which you have redeemed to be the tribe. Tribe. Do you you see the, the plural? The whole psalm is Asaph talking about his people, his nation. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? There's some striking parallels between Psalms 1 and 2 and Psalms 73 and 74. Why am I bringing this up? What's the point? What does it matter? Here's why it matters. You realize that God, who inspired these writers to pen these words and then providentially cared for how they're arranged, can give us the kind of continuity and cohesion with psalms, that if we knew these psalms better and how they were arranged and why, it would blow our minds. We would see parallels. We would see instruction from this psalm to that psalm. We would see some similarities between that book and this book. And you and I would say say to ourselves something like this, Oh, the mind of God. How He's instructing us even with the way that he's putting these psalms together in their respective books. There's a point to them. There's confrontation. 
all the way to consummation and everything else in between. This is, this is what we're doing when we study these psalms. You say, well, if you were to tell me what is the big difference between Psalm 1 and Psalm 73, well, number one, we don't know exactly who the author of Psalm 1 is. Let's say it might be David. But certainly in Psalm 73, we know who it is, Asaph. Do you see it in the superscription? A psalm of Asaph. And I've told you before that that's the first verse in the Hebrew text of Scripture. That's verse 1. And then, of course, verse 1 in our Bibles is actually verse 2 in the Hebrew text, and so on as it goes. This is, I believe, part of inspired Scripture, a psalm of Asaph. Who's Asaph? He was one of those, along with, and we'll be introduced to them later in this book three, the sons of Korah. And you can actually read about them in the book of the Chronicles. And they were, as musicians, called upon by God to be instrumentalists and singers and leaders of the musicians of Israel. And, and that's Asaph. For instance, if you wanted to look, we can't, don't have the time now, but 1 Chronicles 6.29, Asaph was called upon to lead Israel in songs of worship. And perhaps there are a couple of generations, maybe several, between David and his psalms and now where we find ourselves in book three with some of these grandsons and later. Because there might actually be in Psalm 73 and 74 some three to four hundred years from the time of David's life. And these are those men who were appointed, according to the Word of God, to lead Israel in worship. And so just like David or whomever wrote that first psalm, talking about the righteous and the wicked, now you have the next and ongoing generations, even as one generation dies off and another generation comes, you have yet another psalmist here, Asaph, referred to in the Chronicles, and he's asking a question about this same grouping, the righteous and the wicked. But for him, unlike Psalm 1, he's greatly troubled greatly troubled. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. He starts out well, doesn't he? Look at verse 1. He starts out well by affirming how good God has been to Israel. That's what he says in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, referring to the Israelite people. And yet he's struggling right after verse 1. I mean, as soon as verse 1 comes and goes, Asaph is really struggling with something in his heart. Not the whole of the people of Israel. Let's just set them aside for a moment, and let's just talk about Asaph himself. He's one individual, and yes, he has a major area of responsibility to help lead his fellow Israelites in worship of Yahweh but he's struggling. And as we say in our parlance, he's struggling big time. 
What's he struggling with? I tell you what he's struggling with. He's struggling with what we call theodicy. Theodicy. Now that's a big word, and that's a word that we don't use a lot. And it's actually the combination of two words coming into one. And the first, of course, is theos, and that's the Greek word for God. And dike, the latter part of that word, is the word for righteous or just. And so theodicy is this, God's justification. God's justice, God's fairness. Some of theodicy has to do with the origin of evil. Why? Why did evil come? What is evil? Where is it going? Who's in charge? Who can deal with such evil? Why isn't evil being dealt with? Oh, and so part of that question is what Asaph is struggling with. He's trying to come to grips, as our other Bible writers that we'll see, he's trying to come to grips with the concept of, is God really fair? Is he really fair? No, as I said, he starts out so well, God is good to Israel. Notice the first phrase of verse 2, but as for me, but as for me, and here's the most interesting thing even beyond that phrase, but as for me, God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit lets him say that. It's penned as Holy Scripture. God's allowing him to share his heart, we might say. And here's what's in his heart. Is God fair? Is God just? This might be one of the greatest psalms, and it might also be one of the greatest words in all of the Old Testament in an attempt to get at that answer. Is God fair? Is He just? Is He righteous? So what does Asaph say? Well, before we say that, we do have to say that for our new covenant ears, we're New Covenant people, the idea for us with more and greater New Testament revelation, maybe you and I are saying something like, I don't struggle as much as Asaph. I don't struggle as much as Asaph because I know what the Bible says. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3.12, the Bible says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall or will be persecuted. So we read a verse like that, 2 Timothy 3.12, and we, we, we come to grips with it, and we say, that's what the Bible says. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a part of life. It's a part of what will be. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, somebody's going to have a problem with it. And you might even be persecuted, and some of you might even be persecuted in a really, really hostile way, perhaps even physically, perhaps even with your death. And the Apostle Paul actually in Acts 14.22 declares this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations. So perhaps Asaph, if he'd had that kind of New Testament revelation, maybe Asaph would say, that is so helpful. That is so helpful that I know 
that, that in the path of living a godly life, of being a believer in Yahweh, then I'm, I'm being comforted and instructed and encouraged that for me, I, if I'm a godly person, will be persecuted. I will undergo many tribulations. Or perhaps that's not enough. Perhaps even if he knew that, we would still struggle. And you and I do know a lot of the New Testament and what it says about suffering, and we still struggle as well. You turn on the television. You see all kinds of mayhem. You see uh, countries flirting around with bombing each other. Anybody see that in the news recently? And you see these children in certain countries who don't have enough food, who have these distended bellies. And you hear the music in the lilting background and you hear the idea of how these children are dying through starvation. And you and I are also tempted to say, regardless of New Testament revelation about the fairness of God, and you might be tempted as I am to say something like this, where is God? Why is He letting these little kids, these little children, some of them even babies, die in their infancy of malnutrition? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. And you have situations and scenarios like that, even with new covenant eyes looking through the lens of the New Testament, and you not only see these children with distended bellies and starvation and floods and fires and earthquakes and wars, but you also see the prosperity of the wicked. And they seem to be doing so well. And you're saying to yourself, I'm just trying to be honorable to God. I'm trying to follow Him and love Him. And I'm trying to be cared for by Him. But I seem to be struggling financially, mentally, spiritually, physically, Socially, emotionally, fiscally, and in every other way. So maybe I can't do a thing about all of the starving children in the world, and maybe I can't do a thing about what has been called natural disasters, but I can get hot under the collar and pretty bothered when I'm trying to serve the Lord and be righteous before the Lord, and I see the degradation of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. Now that gets under my skin. And that's Asaph's problem. Look at verse 2. But as for me, now he's going to tell you his problem. My feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped. And here's his motive for nearly stumbling and slipping into a mental abyss. 
for I was envious, verse 3, of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now that can make me really sad and maybe even mad. Doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem fair. And he goes on, verse 4. For they, speaking of the wicked, this uh, prospering wicked, whoever they may be, for they have no pangs until death. I mean, that's what, that's what Asaph is seeing. That's what he's perceiving. Look, I'm going through a lot of pangs. And the, the righteous of the land, the Israelites, my kinsmen, my, my fellow brothers and sisters of the flesh, we're hurting. We're going through difficulties, trials, challenges. But the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Isn't that graphic? Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. Who do you think he might be referring to with the others? Like my people. Like me. And when I see the wicked out there, I see that their bodies are fat and sleek and they're not in trouble. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And then he starts to talk about some of their characteristics. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Now, is that picturesque? You look in the Proverbs, you look in the early, early part of the book of Proverbs, and you find something like this. May God's truth be wrapped around your neck as a necklace. God's truth. And perhaps a necklace which might actually be as a piece of jewelry the closest thing to your heart. So bind the truth around your heart. But theirs is the opposite. Pride is their necklace. You know what jewelry is? It's a way of saying, look at me. Look at my wealth. Look at my necklace. Aren't I rich? Aren't I blessed? This is what they are. And violence, verse 6b, violence covers them as a garment. In other words, they're full of it, full of violence, and presumably against the righteous. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. That is, that is so graphic. It's, it's that they believe themselves to be so blessed, so rich, so successful that their eyes are bugging out. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. So it's not just the pride of their hearts, it's also the foolishness of their lips. They scoff and speak with malice. In other words, they're all about deceiving you. They're all about tripping you up through their malice. Now, that's not the characteristic of a Christian, right? We're told to put away all malice and slander, right? But this is how they live. This is what they're doing. They scoff at God and men. They speak with malice 
and loftily. That means in a high place, they threaten oppression. And perhaps you and I would see it this way. I'm in charge, you're not. I'm rich, you're not. Do what I say or you're going to meet my fury. They're going to oppress you. Do you know that the Old Testament is filled with passages that that say God comes to the widow? God comes to the childless? And that God has a heart for them? Well, it's also true that if God has a heart for the widows and the orphans, that the wicked have no such heart. They scoff, they speak with malice, and they set themselves up into this high position, threatening everybody with oppression unless you do what I tell you to do, which usually means something like this. You do what I tell you to do, and that is you give me all the things I want, and I'll give you what you want or what I think you need when you need it, and don't say anything more about it. That's oppression, right? Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. What does that mean? It's, it's a way of saying in Hebrew something like this, I've got all the answers. I've been to heaven and back, and I know stuff you don't know. Just arrogance. And their tongue struts through the earth. Look, I know of heavenly things. I know of lofty things. I've got the real secret knowledge, and you don't. And as you've heard the phrase, knowledge is power. And they're just strutting their stuff. They're they're going out to and fro through the earth, strutting their knowledge. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them. And that's now Asaph saying, hey, wait a minute. Here's what I've seen. Here's what I've observed. That even some of your own people, God, are tricked into following them by their eloquence, by their knowledge, by their oppression. And some, even of your own people, Yahweh, are turning to them. And even what's more hideous is that they find no fault in them. Do you know that means that there can be some really wicked people, maybe in the upper echelons even of a country's government, who can sound pretty plausible. I'm leading you in the right way. Follow me. You do what I say and we'll have success in this deal. And it can sound so inviting. And you and I buy the line. And we only learn later that it's a bait and switch. And this is what they do. So even some of God's people are deceived in the process. And perhaps Asaph is saying something like this. Look, I'm just telling you straight out, my Lord and my God, that on behalf of your people and maybe even myself individually as one of your own, I've had real temptations to follow them myself. They got the goods. They got the money. They got the power. They got the success. They got the riches. They got the secret knowledge. Who wouldn't be tempted to follow them? 
who, who wouldn't be tempted to say, well, look, I mean, I, I, I know that they're not Yahweh followers, but they seem to have a convincing message. They, they, they seem to be thriving. They, they seem to be prospering. Perhaps we should look into this. Perhaps we might need to follow them. They seem to have a very strong political party. And even though I can disagree with that particular plank in the platform of their political philosophy, perhaps they ought to be listened to if not actually followed. Asaph's really struggling. And he's struggling with theodicy. Is God really fair? Is he just? Is he righteous? Why is this happening? Why are the wicked prospering? And why are your people turning back to them and finding no fault in them, some of them? Verse 11, going back to the very wicked. And they say, the wicked say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And that sounds like the garden, doesn't it? That sounds like the serpent in the garden. Does God know? And maybe it's even worse. It's a phrase. It's an idea. Does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Maybe it's something like this. Hey, wake up, you God-fearing people. Wake up, you Yahweh followers. Don't you realize that you're following someone who really isn't there? Come on. Get with it. Figure things out. This life is all that there is. Grab all the gusto that you can. You ought to come with us. It's like Proverbs 1. Throw your lot in with us. We'll take all the booty. Come on. Who is your God? Does God really know? Or maybe they're even taunting the righteous with this. Does God even care? Because if he cared, he'd be doing something about it. Verse 12. Behold, Asaph says, these are the wicked. And here's their biography. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you see the contrasts of verses 12 and 13? I mean, here's, here's the unrighteous. They're, they're, they're wicked, yes, but they're always at ease. And, and they're continuing to get the cash. And here's little old me and my people. In vain I've kept my heart clean. You could even say, in vain I've kept myself in the realm of the acquitted and washed my hands in innocence. Can you hear it now? Can you hear Asaph? Lord, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to follow you. And then that Satanic temptation slips in ever so secretly, or so it seems. Hey, does it pay dividends to be righteous? Is it, is it turned around here? Because I'm working on this obedience thing. And I'm doing my best to be holy. But there doesn't seem to be a payoff 
I mean, I get up every day, I read my Bible. I pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. I say to everyone around me, he's my Savior. He's the Lord of my life. I obey him. I confess my sins. I'm in the realm of those who are having hearts clean. We're acquitted. We're a part of the the just. And look at what, what we get as a result. We get to sit in the back seat watching those in the front seat driving the car of luxury and then they stop and tell us to get out. This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. Now, maybe Asaph and perhaps Lance Quinn, maybe we're only talking about ourselves and perhaps no one who's sitting here. Perhaps you've never had a thought like this in your life. Perhaps you've said to yourself, I, I, don't, I don't care about the wicked. I don't care that they're prospering. I think God is just. The end will reveal it all. Uh, I'm okay with being pounded and pummeled. I'm totally good with not getting any of the goods of this life. And I'd say, if that's you, praise God for you. But that's not most Christians. We struggle. We ask these questions. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so does Asaph. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Why? Well, what's he stricken about? What is, what is he rebuked with? Here it is, verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's he talking about? Here's what he's saying. Look, everything that I've penned in this psalm was something that I was thinking about with just my little old self. And I wasn't saying a word to anybody else. And now I'm realizing that I'm not just little old me. I'm a worship director in the house of Israel. And if I had said, instead of, I'm just going to keep my thoughts to myself about this problem that I'm having, this struggle about the wicked and the righteous, I almost actually blurted it out, speaking thusly to the people of God. And if I had done that, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So here's one solid redeeming quality of this man, and I think there are a thousand others for Asaph, and we'll find it out in this book. He thought a bunch of these thoughts, but he didn't go around trying to talk to a lot of other people about it. I think that's a really redeeming quality. He kept it to himself because he knew that inwardly there was a generation to come after him, and he didn't want them to take a spiritual nosedive. So he kept it to himself. Now, he still had those thoughts. And maybe those thoughts are like you and me when we're laying our head on the pillow in the night watches and we're saying it doesn't seem fair. Why don't I get in on some of that which I see the wicked doing? The cars, the clothes, the success, the money, the popularity, 
power? Hey, I just want a little. Just to make me know that God's desiring to bless my life with something. And if you let those kinds of thoughts continue on with no answer, no right answer, and then you start blurting that out to others, you're in deeper trouble than you thought. So, redeemingly, he kept it to himself. This is what I call from verses 1 to 16 including verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You know what I call this? The dilemma pondered. The dilemma pondered. This is is something, friends, that you and I have as a real dilemma. This is a real dilemma. Do you know how many doctoral dissertations... And how many books have been written about theodicy, God's fairness, God's justice? Where both righteous and wicked men and women are trying to get a handle on this thing. The fairness of God, the justice of God. This is a dilemma pondered. This is is probably now the greatest dilemma in the history of God's defense by those who love God. It's probably the number one. It's probably the number one thing in apologetics, the defense of the faith. How can God be God when all of this evil is happening in our world? That's a question that is asked every day without sufficient answers for most. And it might be, especially for the intelligentsia, for the elite, for the educated, the number one thing of which they say, that's why I can't follow the God that you proclaim. Now, it's their sin, it's their morality, it's all of that and more, it's their puffy pride, uh, the biography we've just read about, right? But it's still a dilemma. It's still a dilemma. And even God's own people, even Asaph, is saying, but when I thought how to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I'm laying in my bed all night long and I can't sleep because I'm asking myself the question, why, God? Why? Why is it this way? And did you know, by the way, that Job's counselors had something to say regarding this. And when they said what they said, I want you to see Job's answer. Look at Job 21. Look at Job 21. I mean, his counselors, they were an interesting ragtag bunch, weren't they? And in Job 21, just after one of them just goes to town in chapter 20, Zophar, uh, Zophar the Namathite, Job 21. Listen to Job. Look, this idea of theodicy, this idea of God's justice, God's, God's fairness, it's replete in the Old Testament. Job 21. Keep listening. Job says, I'm going to answer. Then Job answered and said, 
Keep listening to my words, but let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak, and after I've spoken, mock on. (laughs) I'm going to give you the truth, and I know you're going to mock me when I tell you the truth, but I'm going to do it anyway. Verse 4, as for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. In other words, look at my physical condition. Look, Look what's happened to me. And lay your hand over your mouth like, oh, my word. Look at, look at that man. Look at what all he's being afflicted with. It's got to be his sin. It's got to be everything that's wrong with him. That's why it's happening to him. Verse 6, when I remember, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my flesh. Here's his answer. Here's the odyssey. Verse 7, why do the wicked live? See it? Reach old age and grow mighty in power. Doesn't that that sound like Esaph? Psalm 73? Yes, it does. Verse 8, their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. He's not dealing with them, or so it seems. Verse 10, their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to shield the grave. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Do you have a little space between verses 16 and 17? It's there for a reason. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in His anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. That sounds a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? You say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let Him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. In other words, they may think they're unaccountable to God, but it ain't so. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that He judges those who are on high? In other words, they're going to get their comeuppance. Just wait. Verse 23, one dies in in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. You ask me if God is just and I give you that answer. Behold, and this is to his three friends, behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? He says, yeah, well, you go on saying that you think 
that there is prosperity with the wicked. But I tell you, verse 31, who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Don't come to me with a theodicy that says God doesn't care and he will not act and there is no judgment for the wicked. I tell you it isn't so. So away with your false theology. God will require of the wicked their judgment. Just a matter of time. Just a matter of when. And he will give the righteous their just delights. It will happen. So don't lay in bed at night thinking, when is it going to come? It will come. Even if it doesn't come to you and me in this life. Because there's a life hereafter. A life of blessing heavenly bliss. Speaking and seeing our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, face to face. God rewards the righteous. And I, and I love how Asaph makes the turn. You see it in verse 17? Verses 17 to 28, it's this. I call it the discernment provided. If, if verses 1 to 16 is the dilemma pondered about this theodicy, then verses 17 to 28 is the discernment provided. Here, here's the answer. And this is some of the greatest theology in the whole book of Psalms, maybe in the whole of the Old Testament. And it starts out with this. Here's how Asaph got himself in the right frame of mind. Verse 17, until, 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 all 16 verses, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See the turn of the psalm? Do you see it there? It's a sharp turn, but it's a lovely, blessed turn, isn't it? And you see how the hinges turn? until I went into the sanctuary of God. Do you know that's what we're doing tonight? Do you know that's what we're doing on the Lord's Day mornings and the Lord's Day evenings? When you and I are struggling with theodicy, when we're struggling with the why and the how, and why is this happening, and why is our world like it is, and will not God reward the righteous someday, and why isn't it if I'm a attempted to ask, why isn't it now? You and I need answers. And sometimes it appears as though the answers aren't coming. So what do we need to do? Yes, we need to ask and seek answers in the night watches by ourselves individually alone. But we need so much more than that. It's not just one man, one woman, their Bibles and nothing else. It's not just rugged individualism. It's the corporate people of God coming together to ask those same questions and to receive affirming answers. 
You see how important church is? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I got it. And then I discerned the discernment is being provided by God in His presence, in His sanctuary, with His people, with the corporate throng. Now don't let me get tempted to go on a sidetrack here and talk about the value of corporate worship. Because I will go for 30 minutes straight. But you get the point, don't you? I discerned their end when I went into the sanctuary of God. And I sang with the throng. And Asaph, I led them in song. And God comforted me there. And He brought answers to me there. And I was with the people of God to find the answers of God. And it was sweet to me. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Who's that? The wicked. You make them fall to ruin. Yeah, I'm discerning their end now. How they are destroyed. And what's the timing here? In a moment. In the flash of a bulb. In the twinkling of an eye. In the trumpet sound. Verse 19 how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And you know what they're swept away with, undoubtedly, so many of them? Wait a minute. All my life I've lived for myself, and now as I'm being swept away, I was wrong. And God is fair and just. And he's now giving me what I deserve. And I'm terrified. Verse 20. Here's a picture of God himself. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Do you see what Asaph is saying? It's as though... In this theodicy of where is God and what is he doing and when will he act and when will it be? And then Asaph says, and in a moment God rouses himself from what appeared to be a dream and he sees the wicked and he says, they are nothing to me. They're like phantoms, they're not powerful. They're not in charge. I'm in charge. And they're gone in a moment. Verse 21. Now Asaph repents in his heart. Look at what he says. When my soul was embittered, he even acknowledges, I was having such a problem in my heart that I became embittered against you, God. Now, that's, that's repentance. That's honest repentance. I was embittered against the thoughts that I was having in my soul about your unfairness, your injustice. 
when I was pricked in heart. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You know, that's (laughs) strikingly similar to the end of Proverbs. You don't have to turn there, but in Proverbs 30, there's a man named Agur, son of Yahweh. And he says this, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Sounds like Asaph. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man, Proverbs 30, verse 2. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And he goes on to say, I'm a brute. I'm a beast. I don't have the right knowledge. I think I can contend with the Almighty? I'm undone. And here's what he says, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. You know that's the answer to theodicy? Say it to yourself whenever you are tempted to say, what are you doing, God? Are you being fair? Are you being righteous? Say what Augur says, Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Even when you don't see it, even when there is a statement that God says, I will punish the wicked, believe it. Don't say, I believe it, but do it now. He will do it in his time. And oh, by the way, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Don't contend with the Almighty as though he's got to act on your time frame and with your course of action. And that is what Asaph is saying. I was brutish. That means I'm bestial. You're you're the almighty God, and I'm like an animal that doesn't have a mind, though I have a brain. I'm a brute. I'm ignorant. I'm a beast. And that's, that's the end of Asaph's confession. And he says, I'm so convicted. I'm so challenged. I can't believe that I that I actually questioned the goodness of God. Isn't that the way he started? Psalm 73, 1. God, surely God is good to Israel. He's getting back there, my friends. He's getting back to the affirmation of that. Surely God is good to Israel. And I re-gripped on that truth. I re-gripped on it. And then, as the leader of the musicians and the people as they sing. Asaph says, can I share a song with you? Can, can, can we sing together? And here's his song. Look at verse 23, all the way through to verse 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, with you, God. You're my father. You're my leader. You're my justice. You're my fairness. You hold my right hand. Can you see a big father with his index finger held out and that little boy who's a toddler who's like you and like me in our thoughts and we're reaching up to grab that 
massive index finger? That's, that's what he's saying. I don't know anything. I'm a brute. I'm a beast. I'm ignorant. I'm arrogant. I'm embittered. I was pricked in my heart, and then I got it. And I realized, you're right there, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Could I take a pastoral riff for 30 minutes and talk about the need for the intake of God's holy word, His very counsel? How much time are you reading God's word? How much time are you pondering the truth of God's word each and every day? Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Why? Because when you get those thoughts, the, the evil of the theodicy that says, where is God, and is he leading my life, and is he giving me good principles, and who to marry, and, and, and what job to have, and what church to attend, and, and who to be with, and how many children, and all those things that don't appear to be in the Word of God, if you bathe yourself in the stuff that's in there, you'll have no trouble ultimately figuring out the stuff that's not revealed there. You guide me with your counsel. And do you notice this? The counsel of God's word, and I was in the sanctuary of God, the chief means of grace. God's word, God's people. And this is a prayer. The word of God, prayer, church, and singing. This is a psalm you see what he's saying? You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. I won't be like the wicked who's trashed in the dumpster fire of eternity. I'll be with you in glory. No wonder the paean of praise in verses 25 to 28 is this, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, he's repenting fast, isn't he? And by the way, that very verse, Psalm 73, 25, is one of the Scripture passages in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and smaller catechisms that when the answer is given, and what is the first catechism question of the Westminster Catechism? What is it? What is the chief end of man? What's the answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Look at Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The Westminster divine said that is a perfect verse for catechism question number one. That's a perfect verse for you and me. My flesh, verse 26, and my heart may fail. I'm human. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's the answer. He's the answer to all theodicies that end in a cul-de-sac. He's the answer. Because there is no spiritual cul-de-sac with God. I 
may fail in my heart and my flesh, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I will cling to him as long as I live. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's the end of the wicked. That's the answer. And I don't want to be a part of that. Do you? Verse 28, but for me, here's the contrast. Here's the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. We just heard about the wicked. They're far from you. They shall perish. Doesn't that sound exactly like Psalm 1? Yes, but the way of the wicked shall what? Perish. Here it is again. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And now here's the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, Psalm 1. He knows that way because he knows them. He's got an intimate relationship with them. And here it is. But for me, it is good to be near God. I shall say it is. Isn't it great to be near to God, to know your sins are forgiven, and to know you're on your way to heaven regardless of whether or not you get the goods in the here and now? The fine cars, the fine clothes, all the money, all the power, all the knowledge. It's good, this is good, just to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, my sanctuary, my fortress, my tower that I may tell of all your works. It's evangelism. I'm going to tell all the people of God what the people of God ought to think and do, and I'm going to tell all the people who are in the perishing category how to flee from the wrath to come. Oh, my friends, if you're like me, this might actually be now my most favorite psalm. And I know that I say that almost after every psalm. But is this not one of them? This is, this is how to discern theodicy, the origin of evil, the end of man, the fairness and justice of God. This might be the pinnacle statement of all statements in the Old Testament about how God is to be feared and loved and clung to as a refuge and how he promises and will in his time and place deal with the wicked, it shall be dealt with. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, We have to confess to you that we are often those who are brutish and without clear thinking. And we want to affirm even the song that we sang tonight, where'er my God, whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he does and follow where he guideth. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. 
I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. Father, this is a this is a song that has the right answer to the theodicy questions. What air my God ordains is right. Oh, Father, give us such worship and praise to the God who ordains what is right. We love you. Please forgive us for our questions of the heart that can sometimes make us so embittered. We acknowledge our brutishness. We are mere men and women. And you are the God Almighty who knows and ordains what is right. We worship you. And we have nothing besides you and nothing that we need or want besides you. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for saving us and calling us with a holy calling. We love your character, and we don't despise you. Thank you for your goodness to us. And we wait now in your timing to punish the wicked and to exalt the righteous. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.